So this is how you know we're in a serious retreat for old students. A handout with lots of Pali words in it. But we're not going to be examining you on this. This is all of the things on this piece of paper aren't even necessary for you to know. But given the context of this retreat and what we're teaching, I just felt it might be helpful for you to have some of these uh, concepts and uh, lists down on paper. Eugene mentioned last night how many different lists you can find this capacity of samadhi uh, mentioned, and it's often in, towards the end of the list, and it's helpful to see it in this context to see the qualities that are said to proceed or be proximate causes for concentration. So I thought it would be helpful for you to have it down on paper with the English and the Pali. And we'll be talking about some of these lists and this development throughout this retreat. So you might keep this at hand and, and refer back to it, but you also don't need to. A little while ago, um, I watched a great movie called Shortcut to Nirvana. And it, it promised a lot more than it actually uh, gave, but it was quite fun to watch. It was a movie about this amazing event called the Kum Mela, which is apparently the largest gathering of humans on the planet. It said it happens every 12 years in India. And it's so many people gather there, it can be seen from space. I've heard that up to 70 million people go to wherever this event is being held um, and gather there. And if you've ever been to India, you can imagine what that's like, the chaos and the, the crowds and the different sites. But it's a spiritual gathering, as, it, as these things are in India. India is such an amazing place where spirituality is really at the core of people's lives in a very deep and heartfelt way. And people come here, come to that place, uh, to bathe in the holy river for purification, millions of them. And it's also, it's like the Woodstock for all of the sadhus, gurus, and swamis, all of the spiritual teachers of the time. They just flock there, and there are pageants of them, and parades of them, and booths with them, and teachings from them and huge billboards with pictures on them. It, it's quite amazing. And it, this movie um, shows a lot of the traditional Hindu practices that are still uh, in, uh, practiced currently in India. Ascetic practices. There's a guy who, who's held his arm over his head for so long it's become frozen in place and his hand is kind of atrophied. There's one, I, I didn't know whether I'd mention it to you, but this is this is a um, uh, respected practice in India. Men who hang heavy things from their penises. It's one of the ascetic practices, and it was shown in this movie. But they also uh, stress the samadhi practices. A lot of these gurus and teachers are still teaching and practicing samadhi. It's considered one of the highest practices for them. Um, and if you remember the, the arc of the Buddha's life when he left his householder life and uh, wanted to come to awakening, wanted to find an end to suffering, he did those practices. First, he did concentration practices. He went to the greatest teachers of the age and <coughs> achieved mastery over the highest states of jhana to the extent that these teachers 
acknowledged him as their equal and asked him to teach with them, but he saw that that wasn't enough. It wasn't doing it. And from that, he went to the ascetic practices. And luckily, for, I think Eugene told the story about how he saw that also wasn't enough. It took some food and went on to um, open to his awakening. But these practices are still very much the core of a lot of Hindu practices today. And one of the people who was featured in this movie was a Japanese woman who's renowned for her samadhi. She's almost revered for that. And to demonstrate her samadhi, they showed her being nailed into a box that was nine feet long by nine feet wide by about four foot high and then put underground. And she stayed there for three days. And when she came out, she was beaming, she was smiling, and her blessing to everyone was, may you achieve samadhi. So that's my blessing for you too. But I think we've seen, and we from the Buddha's teachings, know that that's not enough. We practice concentration as a means to an end, in order to awaken, in order to turn that concentrated mind to vipassana. But first, we have to develop the concentrated mind. And even though we're not locked into a nine-foot-by-nine-foot box here, uh, there are some ways, if you're used to vipassana, that this emphasis on the breath, on the simplicity of the breath, on coming back again and again to just being the breath, can seem kind of restrictive kind of narrow. I really hope you're starting to see from the instructions that we're giving, from the teachings, that concentration, focus on the breath, doesn't necessitate a narrowness or a tightness of focus. That this emphasis on relaxation and contentment really can bring a spaciousness of mind even as we keep coming back, even as we keep coming back to just this breath just this breath. So it's really important to keep that in mind, even as we have this intentionality towards deepening the concentration. And because it's a concentration retreat, we naturally have an expectation that we'll get concentrated, right? It's here I am putting in all this work, huffing and puffing away, and where's the concentration? If you've been on a meta retreat, you'll already know this, that you know, on a meta retreat, it's advertised as loving kindness and goodwill, and our image of it is beautiful states of mind. And it can be the most difficult, challenging practice because the opposite becomes so clear when we're not feeling metta. It's the purification practice that we, we actually, um, the work of the practice is being willing to be with those difficult states of mind. In a concentration retreat, the same process can be at work with this intentionality towards concentration, the times that we're not concentrated can loom very large and lead to a sense of frustration or aversion or um, ill will towards whatever, you know, sometimes towards ourselves, but it certainly can be expressed outward because there's this natural tension between where we're wanting to go, where we have the Uh, our ideas about concentration and our actual moment-to-moment experience. And it's, again, it can seem heightened because of this exclusivity around the breath. And if we're new to this practice, we don't perhaps yet have the skills to work with the challenges. Whereas in Vipassana, the teachings are lovely because, or the practice is lovely because it's inclusive. 
Anything that arises, we can make the focus of our practice. Any difficulty, any mind state, any experience. There's really a sense of whatever's happening. Here there's this sense of not that, not this, but just this one experience, the experience of the breath. And this can feel challenging. Gil Fronsdale describes vipassana as serial monogamy and concentration as committed monogamy. And it's like, here we are with the breath till this retreat doth end. You know, we've made this commitment and can feel a tension around that. So what I want to talk tonight about is some factors that specifically help the deepening, support the calming and the quietening, the centering of the mind, and, those, and the factors that are disruptive, that make it difficult to concentrate, and how to work with those. The supportive factors are the jhanic factors, and that's the first set of lists on your handout, the five jhanic factors. And these are qualities of mind that we cultivate in practice, that are a necessary part of practice, but that they actually constitute the first jhana. So we develop them through our continuous practice, but their unfolding and deepening actually come together at a certain point and become our experience of first jhana. So they're very integral to this experience of absorption. And we'll talk more about that process and, and the experience of jhana later in the retreat. For many of you, it may be the first time you've heard of this list of the jhanic factors, or you may have heard of some of them, but not all of them. But I think as I describe them, if you've done some meditation practice, they'll all be somewhat familiar to you because they're not necessary just for concentration practice. They're an integral part of vipassana practice as well. Any extended period of practice will be tapping into some, if not all, of these factors. So you will probably know them already. The hindering factors are our old friends, the hindrances. And if you've done any practice, you'll know that list of the five um, states of mind and heart that obstruct clear seeing, that, that make it difficult for us to meditate. And they're, they're very familiar to us experientially, even if we don't remember the list of them, experientially, we know them quite well. But what's interesting is each of the jhanic factors is said to balance and diminish uh, its opposite hindrance. And so we can actually act actively use the, con uh, the um, cultivation of the jhanic factors to reduce and then suppress the hindrances. So there's actually a dynamic going on here that's quite powerful and it's really helpful to know how it works. Because when we're developing concentration, there are two things that have to be happening kind of simultaneously. One is which we're reducing or purifying the obstacles, the hindrances, and the other is where supporting and developing and uh, nourishing, nurturing the jhanic factors. And you can feel this movement going on in your practice all of the time and beginning to recognize it and knowing where to put energy and where to take away energy can really help the practice to deepen. It's an analogy that's often used in the teachings of uh, 
it's used often for the factors of enlightenment, but the same applies for the jhanic factors, where you feed the jhanic factors and you starve the hindrances. This is what I'm going to be talking about tonight. And it's what you're actually doing. Anytime you're mindful, this process is going on. You're weakening the movement towards these difficult states of mind and heart, and you're developing these beautiful qualities of the jhanic factors. One of the things we have to recognize in concentration practice is if we're not concentrated, one or more of the hindrances are present. It's really as simple as that. And our willingness to have that interest, that investigation, that curiosity, if the mind isn't easily settling, what is it that's going on? And be willing to work skillfully with that is going to, again, allow the concentration to deepen. But just to remember that, if the mind isn't settled and easily with the breath, one or more of the hindrances are likely to be present. Once we recognize that that's our experience, then we have a number of choices as to what to do, depending on what our experience is. The first and simplest is to actually just leave whatever it is in the background. And this is the most helpful way to continue the practice. If we can just let it be, whether it's a difficult state of mind or a discomfort in the body, we just know that it's there. It's not a denial of it, but we just let it be in the background. And if it works for you, um, can actually include it in the breathing. I think Eugene mentioned this in the instructions this morning. We breathe into the sadness or the tightness or the contraction, the aching. We actually expand the sense of breath to include that. So the focus stays primarily on the breath, but the experience of difficulty is included. This is a wonderful way to just keep the practice going. But as you've probably already experienced, Sometimes that doesn't work, as lovely as it sounds. Whatever it is, is just too strong. Now, a second kind of experience can happen um, perhaps before the hindrance gets too strong, but when we're aware that we're kind of in the neighborhood of a hindrance, whether it's sleepiness or aversion or wanting, and we're, we're used to that territory where we start to see certain types of thoughts arise or experience in the body. And as experienced meditators, we kind of know where that's heading, you know, usually going in one direction, whether it's thinking about home or work or challenges in your relationship or a relationship to a particular experience in the body. And then there's a skillful use of avoidance, where you just recognize that tendency, recognize that direction, and you just choose to let go of those thoughts, let go of that, that uh, whatever you, it is you are paying attention to, and choose to come back to the breath. This is actually very skillful avoidance. It's not denying, it's not repressing, it's just not giving energy to that, not getting close enough, not developing it in any way, not giving energy to it, so you can come back to the breath. So it's just a refocusing, just a clarification of intentional commitment back to the breath. 
The third process that can, that can happen that's a skillful relationship to the hindrances, if they've arisen, you're lost in aversion or wanting or sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, is what's called abandoning. A, a term people might be more comfortable with or familiar with is just letting go. It's just recognizing that this is... as And it's interesting how appealing sometimes the hindrances can be. As difficult as those mind states are, we want to get in there and stir around in them, really hold on to them, identify with them. With this intentionality towards staying with the breath, there has to be this willingness to say, not now. And it can, can be, this doesn't always work, but can be sometimes as simple as that. Recognizing the temptation or the interest or the clinging, the identification with those states or experiences and just saying, not now. I'm not going to indulge in this. I'm going to let this go. I'm going to abandon this. Again, this may not always work, as skillful as it is. Then we use antidotes. Then we actively engage with whatever it is that's challenging our practice. And the couple of simple antidotes we can use, and again, we'll explain these more throughout tonight and other instructions, is vipassana, is to actually bring our mindfulness to the experience and use the techniques that you're familiar with of knowing and naming what's happening in the body, in the mind, bringing some clarity and acceptance to the experience, not getting caught in the story, letting it actually settle a little as you turn the attention and know it for what it is. Not going to go into a whole explanation. You're all familiar with that way of practicing. Another alternative is to actually bring the metta practice in that we began today. One of the reasons we find it so helpful to include some metta practice in a concentration retreat is, as well as being a concentration practice, it brings a sweetness in to our practice and can really balance out tendencies towards greed or aversion whenever we feel narrow or constricted. So again, it's more skillful to actually engage with these difficult mind states than kind of feel like you're pushing them away and they keep coming in. You know how they do. It's like an octopus with all these tentacles and you might push down one and it'll come up somewhere else. Much better to actively engage than try to suppress and have it then overwhelm and overtake you. So really to learn this kind of navigation is really helpful and to recognize that concentration can still be continued to develop even as you practice vipassana or metta. That the steadiness of mind in opening to these experiences or bringing in the phrases of metta will allow the concentration to develop actually probably more effectively than if you tried to hang on to the breath like a, like a, a leaf in the wind and you were just being blown about by the hindrances. So again, just an encouragement to use your skillfulness, use skillful means in this practice. It's not about, you know, breath or bust kind of thing. It really is, there's a wider range of approaches that you can use. So the first two factors of vitaka, the first factor is vitaka, which is this quality of aiming the mind, directing the attention, towards a chosen object, chosen experience. And then vichara, sustaining the attention 
over, over a period of time. And these two factors are always spoken of together, vitaka and vichara. Upandita likes to use the language of aiming and rubbing, just really that sense of landing on an experience and, and, and sinking into it. You often, if you know these terms, may have heard them refer, refer to as a kind of thinking. Um, aim, uh, aiming the aimed thought, uh, no, sorry, applied thought and sustained thought. And this can be confusing as we're sitting here just being aware of the breath to, to con- conceptualize this as, as thinking. But I think what it's really referring to is using the, basically the sort of cognitive functioning of the mind to turn the attention to the breath. And Eugene spoke, I think, last night about this, this instruction, if you're going to think about anything, think about the breath. It's really, this is what it's talking about, this aiming and sustaining, using our, our in, in, uh, analytical skills and our cognitive faculties to just know what's happening, recognize the breath and sustain. So I, I just like to use um, uh, aiming and sustaining to refer to these two factors. What's important to remember about them is that we're not talking about long periods here. With this aiming and sustaining, it's really just to think of it as simply as connecting with the beginning of an in-breath and sustaining for the length of an in-breath. And then connecting to the beginning of an out-breath and sustaining for the length of the out-breath. If the concentration is a little more settled, you might find that you can connect at the beginning of in-breath and sustain for the full in-breath and out-breath. But you don't want to have the sense of sustaining being held over long periods. That leads to tension. That leads to striving. It's really got to be this again and again, moment after moment, connecting and sustaining so that there's a lightness to it. And to recognize that all there needs to be is just this attention resting on the breath and then the interest enough to stay there. It's very light, even with this sense of sinking in that Upandita likes to talk about. We don't have to effort or push in this. It's, it's a very delicate kind of practice. It's just enough sustaining to connect to the next moment that we we do the aiming again. So it's a very light practice, but you'll, you'll notice as you kind of play with this and have these concepts that each time there's this sense of aiming, there's a little bit of energy that comes in, a little bit of freshness. Here's a breath. Here's the beginning of the in-breath. Here's this experience. And then this willingness to settle and to stay, and in that there's kind of an ease in the continuity When we don't, when these two factors don't come together, when there's perhaps just the aiming and not much sustaining, this is when we space out. When the mindfulness doesn't stay connected to the breath or the object, and it just slips off so easily. Vitaka and vichara are what enables us to stay present moment after moment. And vitaka is this first factor of the aiming is the antidote to sloth and torpor because of this quality it has of of bringing this little brightness, this little sense of wakefulness to the experience. 
sloth and torpor is that hindrance of dullness when you really get spaced out and it be it's not even sloth and torpor it's toth and slorpor you can't even get the words out anymore it's so so um, confusing and dulling and just to recognize that in the early days of retreat this experience is going to be your constant friend probably not your ally but definitely your uh, acquaintance it's just the nature of a retreat and this practice so having some acceptance and allowing of that helps to go through that phase of practice a little more easily Um, and to recognize that many of us come into retreats a little tired and we need to find some way of restoring our energy so getting good night's sleep if you can taking naps it's much better to take some naps in the day one two or three naps if you need to rather than be falling asleep all the time in the meditation hall. I call it preemptive napping. It's like, get it in ahead, rather than struggle in this fog of, you know, I should be present and I shouldn't be sleepy. You're sleepy, go take a rest. In the coming days, as we settle in more, I might give different instructions, but for this early day, early days of the retreat, really important not to make an adversary of sleepiness and to also recognize that this practice can induce sleepiness. It's so quiet and peaceful. It's almost self-hypnosis, the in-breath and the out-breath. We're just sitting there. It's almost like a lullaby if the mind gets quiet. And when there's not enough energy and interest, it's really natural that we fall into a sleeping state. Or we can actually have this experience that's very common on retreat. We call it sinking mind. And that's where you can be practicing along and and feel as though you're quite present. If anyone was to ask, you'd say, yep, no problem, here I am, moment after moment with the breath. But then something happens and it's either you notice that someone turned out the lights and you're just gone, or sometimes you've already gone and it's like someone turned on the lights and you wake up and go, what happened? I was there a moment ago and then... This is very similar to sleepiness, but it's a, a different experience and it's where the concentration, this calmness has developed enough that there's this steadiness of practice but there's not enough energy so it's just an imbalance in the practice and all you need to do is bring in a little more energy we actually the calm is helpful the calm is needed to develop the concentration so not to um, make a struggle again about this the same antidotes for sleepiness apply of opening your eyes um, straightening up the posture I find taking some deeper breaths the most helpful antidote for either just regular everyday sleepiness or sinking mind. To recognize we just need to energize the practice a little. Take a few more deep breaths and know it will actually change it in and of itself. One of the things I I really want to um, invite you or encourage you to explore in this retreat is actually the skillfulness of modifying your breathing. Many of us have heard so many times, let the breath be natural, that it can actually either be a struggle because we feel that we do manipulate the breath or that it's wrong to manipulate the breath. We can actually use use the breath and our manner or style of breathing in very skillful ways to bring energy to the body, to calm the body, to make the breath more pleasurable. These are all skillful things to do. We have to be aware, of course, not to get into a gaining kind 
of mind around this, not to actually make a project that we're always manipulating the breath, but to actually, when, when there's challenges in the practice or as an invitation to deepening, to work with the breath in, the, in a skillful way is very helpful and something we'll be talking about and hoping you'll explore a little more. The next factor, the twin factor, first one is vitaka, the next one vichara, is the sustaining of attention, is the antidote to doubt. And it's interesting, you know, how this works, where vitaka has this brightness, <coughs> vichara in its, in its sustaining lets us be with our experience so we can know it. In doubt, we're confused about what's happening. We don't know what's happening. We're out of touch with what's happening. Vichara is that quality of mind or heart that helps us stay connected with what it is. Doubt, of course, is one of the most difficult mind states we can have in life, I would think, particularly on retreat. Though I always think the most difficult hindrance is the one you're having right now. But... Doubt really is challenging because it undermines everything that we're doing. If we get lost in doubt, all of these questions start to arise. You know, Why did I ever think coming on a 10-day concentration retreat was a good idea? Have you had that thought yet? I'm sure some of you had. Or if you know, you've gone beyond that, is, you know, what is it I'm meant to be doing here? And if you've kind of figured that out, well, am I doing it? And then if I'm doing it, is it working? Or is, am I doing it right? Does anyone know what they're doing here? You know, everyone else knows what they're doing here, but I don't know what I'm doing here. Or no one knows what they're doing here. Even the teachers don't know what's going on. These are the kind of thoughts we have when doubt arises. And if we, if we get lost in those, it's just an endless confusion of, of um, meanderings and, and judgments and, and frustrations. Vichara this sustaining quality of mind and heart allows us to stay present so we can see for ourselves. We can start to trust our own practice. We don't have to look outside and go, do they know, can they tell me what's right, what's wrong? We start to know for ourselves what that is. So it really develops faith. And I, in my own practice, when I started doing a concentration practice, and it was over 10 years ago, but I spent many years after that just doing concentration practice in both metta and breath meditation because I found it gave me so much faith in the practice. I was already totally convinced of the power and the efficacy of this practice, but there was something about the jhana practice and the absorptions and seeing for myself the power of a concentrated mind that really shifted this. And vichara is the beginning of that, of just staying with it long enough to feel the fruits, the benefit for yourself. When we listen to the voice of doubt, we stay superficial. We don't trust ourselves, we don't trust the practice, we don't trust anything. And in that confusion, nothing can develop except more confusion. And it, it can lead to a kind of restless energy because we don't have this steadiness, this con- continuity. I, I had this experience very clearly myself. A, a number of years ago, um, my husband and I were going back to Australia to visit my family. 
and we found out we could get a free layover in Fiji, which I'd always had an interest in going to. It sounds like a beautiful tropical place. And we had the idea that this would be a cheap place to learn to scuba dive. In retrospect, is one of these thoughts you have where you kind of go, maybe not the best two things to put together, cheap and scuba diving. It's kind of like you see those ads, cut price LASIK surgery, and there's some areas where not that helpful to cut costs. You know, you want to pay, if something's going to risk, if you're going to risk your life. But, but we did it. We went there, and actually it was a whole long series of very strange experiences. We went to this tiny little place on this tiny little island. It was just a group of shacks, and it turned out they couldn't teach us to scuba dive. We had to actually go to the place next door, and they would teach us. But it kind of worked out in the way these things do. And our diving instructor was this big Fijian man called Ezra. And I certainly had faith in Ezra. He was like a mountain. And the other thing we hadn't factored into this holiday plan was it was actually cyclone season in Fiji. <laughs> so it meant that there were big waves. You know, the calm Pacific wasn't so calm. There were these, these big waves coming up. So it meant that we didn't have a nice swimming pool to practice in. We had to do all our practice experience and dives in the ocean in these big waves. So I was hanging on to Ezra. He would just stand there and I'd be kind of hanging on as we were, you know, practicing going under or whatever. But finally we got to go to our first shore dive where, you know, you just walk in and then you dive and it's getting deeper and deeper. And you just, the idea is you just go down and down and down with the depth of the, the floor. And so Ezra went first, and Guy went next, and I was last. And he told us how, you know, there's a tube that comes out. You're wearing a buoyancy vest that you can inflate to rise up, and you press another button. There's a button to inflate to rise up, and another button on this tube that you press, and it deflates, so you go down. So we'd gotten this instruction. Off we go. We're sort of naturally sinking. But at some point, I notice I'm not sinking enough to keep going down. So I press the button that says, you know, that should sink me, that should uh, deflate the vest. It doesn't work. Well, my tendency, if it doesn't work, you press it again. You know, you press it again, it's still not working. Well, then the next tendency of mine is you press the other button. You know, it's like computers. If one doesn't work, you press another one. I press that one, it, it doesn't work. And so then I'm pressing both of them and like, just keep pressing. Well, obviously one isn't working, but one is. And the one that is, is the one that's inflating. So instead of going down, and I see Guy and Ezra going down, 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 and I'm going up, 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 <laughs> and you can't speak under the water. So I'm so, I, it was such a strange feeling. I'm going up, 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 and I'm following them along and they're going down, down, down. I'm sort of waving and hoping. And eventually I'd see them sort of looking around and it's, Interesting to be in three dimensions. We're not usually in three dimensions. So they're looking around and, you know, where's Sally? And finally they think to look up and there I am about 15 <laughs> feet above them. <laughs> and of course what had happened is I didn't get the trick, which is when you want to deflate your vest, you have to hold the nozzle above your head. And I'd just been holding it down. And so it didn't work. And it was such a clear example to me that when we, without Vichara, without that continuity of attention that let me know, because I'm sure Ezra had told me this, um, what it was, and the doubt that just kept me pressing the buttons, we end up floating on the surface, superficial. And it's just, it's just a simple change of our technique, a simple knowing of what's working and trusting that allows us to actually land in the practice. 
So if you find yourself flailing away at times, remember this example and just simplify. It's always the best thing to do. Don't keep pressing all the buttons, you know, what about this and what about that? Maybe I should try this. Let it all go and come back to the breath. The third of these factors, many of you may already know, is the factor of pity. Pali word is pity. Usually translated as rapture um, or joy. It's, I think, a more helpful explanation of it are terms like rapt attention or joyful interest or zestful interest. Because what's happening in this process is when whatever object we're paying attention to, and in this case is the breath, becomes fascinating to us. We become absorbed in that, in the breath, and our attention becomes wrapped into the breath. Out of that wrapped attention, these often pleasant feelings can begin to arise in the body and mind. The, the pra- practice can begin to seem effortless. And this sounds wonderful, it oft- sometimes isn't. And it's not as though we can just decide to have this experience happen. If we could, of course, you would all be doing this by now. Because we have to recognize that the breath in and of itself isn't inherently interesting. How many breaths have you already breathed in this lifetime? I don't have a clue what the number is. Is it a million, two million? I don't know. It's a lot of breaths. So we've done it many times before. And when we're told to sit down and pay attention, it's like, done that already seen that. Here's another one, same as the last one. What changes is our level of interest in the breath, our relationship to the breath. One of the teachings I found very helpful in this was from a teacher called uh, Ajahn Brahma Wangso. He's an English monk who now lives in Western Australia, and his main teaching, in fact, I think his, certainly his strength of teaching or his focus on teaching is jhana practice. And he talked about when he began to practice as a monk, he was very gung-ho, kind of like the hair on fire kind of practice that Eugene was talking about last night. And he was determined to do this, whatever it was. And so he would, you know, huff and puff as we do, really get fixated on the breath and hold on to the breath and struggle and strive. And he would get to some deep experiences, but he realized that sooner or later he would always crash. We've all had that experience. You can get so far with will, but only so far. And so he'd be back at square one, feeling defeated and frustrated, but then he'd gather himself, it's like hurling his, you know, body against this uh, edifice of concentration again and again and again. Finally, he realized that wasn't going to work. And when he looked at what was happening for him, and see if you can relate to this, he realized that his basic assumption or attitude to the breath was that it was boring, and that the only way he could hold his attention there was with an extreme uh, pressure of will. And he could do it, but only for a certain length of time. So he saw he had to change his relationship to the breath, and he talked about subhasanya, beautiful breath, beautiful perception. Subha means beautiful, sanya means perception, so beautiful perception of breath. I'll leave it to you to discover what that is. This is the koan we have, how to make the breath beautiful. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who um, Ajahn Eugene mentioned last night, 
um, also teaches a lot of breath meditation and he actively invites us to make the breath pleasant. I spoke about this a little earlier. Actually using the breath to breathe into the body in ways that are pleasurable. This is skillful, especially in concentration practice. So it's these kinds of attitudes, these kinds of relationships, this willingness to look at your assumptions about the breath that can actually turn our relationship to the breath to one of interest and delight and lead to this quality of pity or rapture. So rapture is a mental factor, but we often feel it in the body through um, tingling or goosebumps, um, sort of enlivening sense, there can be showering rapture or rapture-like lightning, um, experiences of visual experiences or, or swaying or pressure. All of these can be experiences of rapture. And it always sounds like, oh, I want some of that, doesn't it? I want to get that. Actually, it can become quite unpleasant. It's such a strong, vigorous experience that it can become tiring and actually even a hindrance after a while in, in the strength of the experience. But the balance, what rapture does do is balance aversion. As we get uh, in, enthralled in the object, as we, we, we find delight in the object, this tendency of mind to be critical, to be judgmental, to be dissatisfied with experience, there isn't any room for it. We're all familiar with the aversive mind. We have aversion to our experience in the moment. We have aversion to the past, aversion to the future in the form of fear, about pain, around judging, the judging of inner experience, of outer experience, judging of lesser than, of greater, better than or worse than. When rapture is present, all of this falls away. And even though it's not easy, obviously, to do, but just to know this, that when you find that the mind is contracting into judgment, contracting into aversion, to frustration, to resistance, to resentment, whatever form it's taking, to really know that changing the relationship to the current moment experience, finding something pleasant there, whether it's a breath or something else, can really shift that state, can really actually lead us out of the tendency to aversion. And as I said, these things go together as we have a little more rapture, the aversion lessens when we notice the aversion. And we can see if we can incline the mind to something pleasant, to something beautiful, and, and find the appreciation there, the aversion will reduce. The fourth factor is sukha, or happiness. One teacher likes to um, describe it as the happy contentment of mind and body. It's the opposite of dukkha. I'm sure you've heard a lot about dukkha or suffering. Well, this is sukha, sweetness happiness, pleasantness. It's actually, can, uh, can be experienced as almost a continuation or a refinement of the pity. When the energy of the pity um, reduces a little, sukha is often what, what's there. And sukha is, I think, nearly always there in rapture, but rapture usually isn't there in sukha because sukha is a refinement. There's a letting go of some of that energy of, of the... Um, of the rapture and can actually be a great relief to experience after the strength 
of the rapture. I'm, on, I remember on my first retreat, when I first had a hit, a very, a very clear and sustained hit of sukkah, grasping immediately arose. It's inevitable. If you taste it, you'll know what I mean. My, my felt experience, how I described it to myself was, I felt like a piece of seaweed, you know that long sinuous seaweed, floating in a sea of warm honey. There was just that sensuousness and, and warmth and sweetness to it. And of course, I immediately convinced myself that what I needed to balance the other qualities was more sukha. So, you know, that was my grasping in the practice was how do I get this? I needed, you know, my just very um, uh, objectively seeing this. You know, I need more sukha. This is what I would say to my teacher. And I realized it was just grasping. It's a beautiful quality of mind, very helpful. Um, but like anything, it's just another arising experience. A sukha val- balances restlessness, restlessness, agitation, and worry. And you can see how that sweetness brings in a sense of contentment that eases um, the tendency to agitation, to restlessness, and to worry. We experience the restlessness and worry either physically, through the body, actually just that energetic rush of, of sharp, bright, um, agitated energy. Often it's in the mind, just the thoughts racing on and on and on. Again, a number of different ways you can work with that. Um, If you can leave it in the background, breathe into it, obviously the best way. But to just give it a big space, not to buy into the contraction, not to buy into that uh, vibrating kind of energy. This is a place where it's really helpful to use full, deep breaths really allowing the belly to expand and on the out-breath relaxing to balance the sense of energy. And as I said before, there's, there's actually energy in that state. If it can, you can channel it into a balancing of the excess of calm that might have been there before. So again, none of these states are bad or wrong. They're just expressions of energy that we can work skillfully with. If you find you just need to expel some energy, you can take a fast walk. Don't get the sense that you know, seeing a lot of people creeping around, that that's the only pace you can move at because this is a concentration retreat. Find what helps you to balance the energy that you're experiencing so you can stay more present. You can stay with the breath even doing fast walking. The last of the factors is ekagata, and it's this unification of mind. It's actually often given as a, synon- a synonym for concentration, but it has, uh, it's also um, got a lot of equanimity in it. Its literal translation is one-pointedness. So it's really when the mind collects around the breath and um, is, there's a calmness, a coolness to the experience, a settledness to the experience. Ajahn Sumedho has a great description for ekagata. He says it's one, one, the one point that includes everything. So again, even in saying one-pointedness, not to think of it as a narrowness of focus, but a unification of the mind around this, in this case, one object of the breath, this settledness in the breath, and a coolness or a calmness in that. 
And it's actually a refinement of the sukkha. Even though it doesn't have that same overt pleasantness to it, there's definitely a form of pleasantness in the coolness and the calmness of the akagata. And this is an antidote to greed, because there's contentment in it, there's equanimity in it. Greed, the greedy mind wants to move out and grasp a hold of experience or objects or things. The, the, this one-pointedness, this settledness, is a, is a willingness just to be in the moment as it is. And as we open to these mind states, as we develop them in our practice, it really begins, begins to lessen the belief that happiness is to be found out there, that we just haven't found the right object or experience yet, and if only I could get it right, then I'd be happy when we discover these beautiful qualities of mind and heart in our own experience, it just naturally lessens that tendency to want to look outwards for happiness or contentment. So how do these actually work? I mean, it's not as simple as if you're restless, just bring in some sukha. If only it were. It really is more, as I said, this feeding of these positive factors and starving the difficult ones, and that there's this constant balancing or adjusting that's going on in your practice. It's not about pushing away the hindrances or denying that they're there. We have to skillfully recognize the impact that they're having on our experience and work with them, either by leaving them in the background, knowing they're there, breathing into them, using that skillful avoidance of of, um, circumventing the strengthening of them, or just saying, not now, not now, not going there. And to see that we can actually use the breath as a refuge. Once we cultivate this strong connection to the breath, it actually becomes a refuge for us. And this stuff can swirl around in the background and we really feel um, so connected to the breath that it's something we can just stay steady with. All of the, you'll have tastes of all of these different experiences. And just to recognize strengthening the connection to the breath, beginning with this vitaka and vichara is what's going to allow the concentration to develop. And acknowledging these beautiful qualities of mind when they arise, really seeing that the vitaka and vichara is what you're cultivating, that you know the, the sweetness of mind or joy is present, contentment, or that there's a calmness, a one-pointedness, We need to know these qualities for ourselves. This very knowing of them is actually what cultivates them and allows the others to diminish. A while ago, I saw this great cartoon in the New New Yorker where um, I think it was Roz, I forget her last name. I always like her cartoons. Chaz, yeah, and you start, starts with C-H, Chaz. Um, she did a little thing she called the strip mall of the seven deadly sins. And it was a series of little 
you know, stores, and each one represented one of the seven deadly sins. I thought, this is a great representation. So I came up for one, with one for the hindrances. So the first hindrance is greed, and it was an all-you-can-eat restaurant, buffet restaurant. Second hindrance, aversion. You know, you can think what it might be for you, a gun shop or a martial arts academy or something. Um, the third is sloth and torpor, the lazy boy furniture store. <laughs> the fourth is restlessness, the video game arcade. You know, and the fifth being doubt is the metaphysical bookstore. <laughs> and we'll find ourselves wandering in and out of all of these at different times. When we cultivate the jhanic factors, we see the potential for these experiences these worlds that we find ourselves in of the lazy boy furniture store or the video game arcade actually transforming and the all you can eat buffet is still there but we don't we we take only what we need the gun store becomes uh, a day spa you know some something where it's just a delight for the senses so aversion becomes the sweetness. Sleepiness or the dullness is balanced by vitaka and we bring in interest, there's some energy. And so instead of the lazy boy furniture store, it's like we're in the exploratorium or, or a museum where we're really interested in what we're seeing, what's happening. And the restlessness balanced by sukha the video game arcade becomes this beautiful garden that we actually can wander in and, and find uh, a peace and ease there. And then doubt, when it's balanced by vichara, when it's balanced by faith, the metaph metaphysical bookstore gets emptied out completely and becomes a meditation room. This is possible for all of us. This is the, the, the path that we're on. This is our practice cultivating these beautiful qualities and letting the other ones diminish. We begin with this simple practice of vitaka and vichara. It's important to recognize these are the only two we have any control over. The others are the fruits of practice. We can't force them or will them into being. Vitaka and vichara, this willingness to begin over and over again with connecting and sustaining with the breath, other, is the heart of our practice, this practice or any practice. So just to be willing to start there, not to get frustrated with that. This, these are the cornerstones, the foundations, the building blocks of the practice. As you strengthen them, the other beautiful qualities will flow out of them. So I want to finish with the words of the Buddha about this process from the Digha Nikaya. Having given up covetousness, greed, with regard to the world, the practitioner dwells with a heart free of greed. She cleanses her mind from covetousness. Having given up the blemish of ill will, she dwells without ill will, friendly and compassionate towards all living beings. She cleanses her mind from the blemishes of ill will. Having given up sloth and torpor, she dwells free from sloth and torpor, in the perception of light, mindful and clearly comprehending, she cleanses her mind from sloth and torpor. 
Having given up restlessness and worry, she dwells without restlessness. Her mind being calmed within, she cleanses it from restlessness and worry. Having given up doubt, she dwells as one who has passed beyond doubt. Being free from uncertainty about unwholesome things, she cleanses her mind from doubt. And when she sees herself free of these five hindrances, joy arises. In she who is joyful, rapture arises. In she whose mind is enraptured, the body is stilled. The body being stilled, she feels happiness. And, is ha and a happy mind finds concentration. Then quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, she enters and dwells in first jhana, which is accompanied by applied thought and sustained thought, with rapture and happiness, born of seclusion. Let's just sit together for a moment. We have about a half hour for walking, come back for our last evening sit. We'll make it a little shorter again tonight just to encourage people to come <coughs> do the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.